0: and self-righteousness. That's what Jesus' message is about in the text we're in today. So join me in Luke as we look at spiritual pride and self-righteousness and Jesus' love and friendship with sinners. It's funny that these two topics come together, but Jesus keeps pairing it up in the stories that he tells over the last several weeks, looking at the story of the the merciful Samaritan and how he was the hero of the story, shockingly so, the one considered the most sinful was actually the one who was most in the likeness of God because of his faith in God, his turning from his own sin and his embracing who God is and what he has done for him, and we have the privilege today as we study the Lord's Word to hear Jesus talk about this idea of self-righteousness. Now, I want to set this up for just a little bit. I want to ask you, do you like to be wrong? Do you like to be wrong? I mean, we don't. Do we? Have you, have you ever noticed when you get in an argument, you're never arguing to be wrong, are you? You're not trying to prove yourself wrong. You can maybe it's with your spouse. How many of you have ever had an argument with your spouse? Come on. <laughs> have you ever noticed how it can escalate because both of us will think that we're right? Now, with Sherry and I the unfortunate thing is most of the time I've been wrong and that's really sad to say but I'm just that guy. And Uh, But we get into these arguments. We get into arguments with our children, our friends. Uh, You see the world full of blogs and comments and people. Everybody wants to be right. And one of the hardest things for us is to overcome the desire to be right and to know how wrong that we really are. And that's what this is about. Human nature makes us wrong. Want to be right and puts us on the defensive. When Adam and Eve sinned in the Garden of Eden, the very first thing that they did was they went on the defensive. They tried to cover, they tried to hide, and they tried to blame someone else for their sense of sinfulness. And so that comes out in Our lives, when we sense that we're wrong, we try to prove ourselves right. And so this is a story to people who are believing that in and of themselves they are right in the eyes of God. It's an important story. Now it's interesting to note that in the beginning of the story in Luke 18... It specifically tells that Jesus is not talking about someone. He's talking to someone. Notice as the story unfolds in verse 9 of Luke 18. And he told also this parable to certain ones. So, he's actually telling the story to human beings who think they're good to go who believe down in their heart that they themselves have a thing called rightness or righteousness. We think that they have it. And they think that they've accomplished it. And they think that they are it. And so there's this story about human beings, told to human beings, And it's about all human beings, but it's especially about human beings who have not come to the place of genuine saving faith in Christ that brings them to God. So it's a story to human beings, about human beings, all human beings, but especially about those who have not come to saving faith in Jesus Christ, that brings them to God. And so, what we're going to do is we're going to start with the end of the story, and then we're going to go back to the beginning. So, we're going to start, number one, the story of the Pharisee and the tax collector describes two partings. They say, parting is such sweet sorrow. Two partings. This is two guys walking away from somewhere. Where? They're walking away from Church. The setting of this story is church. It's the temple. It's the worship center. It's the place that people go to worship God, to pray to Him, to interact with Him, to relate to Him and to others. And so, these two guys in the story, at the end of the story, they're leaving church. They're walking out the door in a sense. They're headed out to whatever mode of transportation brought them, whether it was a cart or a donkey or a mule or their own feet. They're headed out the door to that and they're leaving in two different conditions. So jump to the end of the story and listen to their departure. Verse 14, I tell you this man, now the one he's referring to is the unlikely man in the story. He's the tax collector. He's the one that's most obviously sinful. He's the one who's most blatantly sinful. So this man, surprise, surprise hero of the story. Like the Samaritan was the surprise hero of his story. Surprise hero of this story is the guy that was the unlikely guy. So, the surprise hero is the tax collector. I need to tell you real quick about what a tax collector is. He's a guy who has betrayed his country by siding with the occupiers and working for the occupiers in helping take advantage of the occupied. Rome was occupying Israel. And in their occupation, they were severely taxing them to enrich Rome. And so, in their severe taxation, they hired locals to do their work for them. And so Jewish people betrayed their country and went to work for the enemy. And worked for the enemy in the most personal of places, the pocketbooks of an occupied, impoverished people. And so this guy was hated. The tax collectors were considered collaborators with Rome, traitors to their country, men who had taken advantage to their own wealth. Because they were getting paid richly to do this. That was the catch. Why would you be a collaborator with the occupier on the occupied if the occupied are your own family? Well, here's why. Because it will make you rich. Sometimes filthy rich. And so they jumped in, and they said, man, if I can make that kind of a living, (laughs) I'll jump in. And so they worked, and they were hated. In fact, they were classified with what you would call the chief groups of sinners. The chief groups of sinners were a group called sinners, a group that was immoral, such as adulterers and prostitutes, And then there was this third group, the tax collectors. Their families, their relatives, their friends. They were a whole other group. So in the hatedness of society, they were selected as one of the chief groups to receive the criticism and the hate because they had betrayed and they had done it not out of good conscience even, not out of good cause even, but simply to enrich their own selves. And so this Guy is an unlikely candidate to have this pronouncement. But it says they went down to their house. So they're going home from church in a condition. They're leaving church, having prayed, attended, whatever else was involved. And they're on their way home, probably to do what we do when we leave church. We go and we eat and take a nap. And so he's on his way to the house, and the other guy's on his way to the house, and Jesus pronounces something over this one guy. He says there's two partings here. One guy parts and he has the word applied to him justified. That means that Jesus pronounced that this guy left right. He was right. Now I know we like to be right, but here's if you want somebody to pronounce you right and it really matter. Let Jesus pronounce you right. You want some fodder for your confidence in eternal life and eternal joy? Let Jesus pronounce you right. But he says about the other guy, this guy ain't right. Now you would not have picked this pronouncement if you would have been in church that day. That's why it's so surprising. Because the guy that you and I would have picked and made the pronouncement over would have been the one who went away wrong. And we would have unlikely said anything more than a little bit of a whisper about that certain guy that showed up to church today. You know that guy? We know that guy. We know what he's been up to. Can you imagine the chatter on that day when he chose to attend? When the tax collector showed up at church. Can you imagine the whispers in the circles as he made it into the temple precinct and made it to the place of prayer? Can't you imagine the whispers, the oohs, the gasp, the ahs? What is that guy doing in our church? We would not have made the pronouncement Jesus made. That's why the parable is such a shocker. But the other guy walks away and Jesus says he's not right. That guy's not right. This is important because of who is speaking. When Jesus makes a pronouncement that you're right, that's pretty good. That's great. But even more so when Jesus pronounces that you're wrong, that's pretty bad. Like, can't be any worse. So Jesus makes that pronouncement. One guy's right, one guy's wrong. Not in human eyes. Because listen, on the day we stand before God, The people gawking at us have no charge over what's about to happen to us. We will be stripped down for who we are in front of God. And this pronouncement will either be that Jesus has pronounced us righteous or that he's pronounced us not. And so here's this moment. In other words, if both of these guys died on their way home from church, which one would go to heaven? Who? Say it! (laughs) And which one would go to hell? Yeah, that was what Jesus was pronouncing. That one of these guys headed toward home and heaven, and one of these guys headed toward home and hell. But we would not have been able to rightly diagnose by the surface. Because the Bible says God doesn't look... On people as man does. God looks at what? The heart. So that's what's happening here. So you have two partings. One guy's on his way to heaven, one guy's on his way to hell, and it doesn't look obvious as to which one is which. Jesus sees beyond the surface into it, and so you have this. So now, Let's jump back into number two, the beginning of the story. Because in the beginning of the story, Jesus kind of lays something out that are the characteristics of self-righteousness. Last week we talked about the characteristics of love. Love being compassion when we see and mercy when we act. And that the two in love always go together. Compassion when we see. Even our enemy suffering and being willing to do as God does to love, and then to be merciful, to actually act in accordance with the compassion that we have. And so now we have tax collector and Pharisee in the description in the beginning of the story. First, they, they trusted in themselves. This is... The heart of self-righteousness. Self-righteousness is spiritual self-confidence. That I trust that I'm good to go. That's it. I trust in myself that I'm good to go. It says that. He says, this parable was told to certain ones who trusted in themselves. They did. This is where their faith was. Their faith was in what they had made of themselves. What they had become. This guy had made of himself a really good man. The Pharisee, he had made of himself a moral man. He had made of himself a religious man. He had made of himself a giving man. He had made of himself a tither. He had made himself a disciplined man. He fasted twice a week. He had made of himself a lot. And therefore, he thought very highly of himself. Because he saw himself, by God's help, a self-made man. And so Jesus says the story is for this part of us. The part in every one of us that tends to trust in ourselves, that tends to have confidence in our accomplishments. We sing it in certain songs that this is wrong. We sing, on Christ the solid rock I stand, and we say this line in that we say, I dare not trust the sweetest frame. Back in the day when that was written, the sweetest frame means our best performing day. The day when we did all things right. All things good. It says, I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on what? Okay, we, we sing that this is a wrong posture, but then we get caught up in the posture because it's part of fallen human nature. So Jesus speaks to us candidly. They trust themselves. Second, they thought they were righteous. This is where we give ourselves a thumbs up. I'm good to go. I'm good to go. I'm good to go. I remember sitting with a guy, talking with him about the gospel. And I remember him saying something really strange to me. He said, well, God and I worked that out years ago. And that was all that he would let me talk about, was that God and he had worked it out years ago. God's not working something out years ago. What you believe today is important. Not what you did in 72 or 86 or 54. That would be a long time ago. What you believe today is very important. And so there's this need in our understanding to confront the fact that a lot of us very quickly think, I'm good to go. And that it's rooted in our performance, our religion, our morality, our activity, our sacrifice, our giving, some kind of behavioral thing where we trust in ourselves. So the second component is that they thought they were righteous. They said to themselves, you're good to go. You're good. You're good, man. Third part is that they treated others with contempt. They needed somebody else to look down on. This is kind of the heart of this. When we trust in ourselves, we need somebody to compare ourselves to. You understand that? If I'm going to trust in myself, I've got to find somebody to compare myself to that I can be better than. I do. I've got to find that. I've got to latch on to someone out there that's worse than me. And so I can do it religiously, I can do it ethnically, I can do it politically, I can do it morally, I can do it by nationality. I can do it in a lot of different ways. I can find somebody and then I can feed that. I'll start watching television and reading uh, articles and and listening to, to talk radio somehow that feeds that part of me that says, they're all bad and I'm good. And we'll watch hours of it. Whether our political leanings jump over into MSNBC or whether our political leanings jump over into Fox News, we will feed ourselves those things that make us feel like we're better than other people. And we will nourish our souls on it. And it's a lie. It's a hellish, satanic lie. The belief that we are somehow, by any kind of thing to do with us, superior to anyone, is from Satan. But it's the central boast of this man. It's the heart of insecurity. Spiritual insecurity needs someone contemptible to look at. It needs it, and it feeds on it. This is why we're drawn to certain things. We're drawn to certain kind of conversations and talks because we need an enemy. We need a bad guy. We need a boogeyman that we can look at and say, I am so glad I am not like them. And all of a sudden, contempt begins to brew up in us and we view other people made in God's image with contempt because we think that the way God is going to grade us is based on some kind of human comparison. There's these two guys, they're out in the woods. And uh, this bear comes after them. And the one guy sits down very quickly, unlaces his boots, pulls out a pair of tennis shoes and puts them on. The other guy says, dude, you know you can't outrun a bear. He said, I don't have to outrun the bear. I just have to outrun you. Now a lot of folks are trying to get to heaven that way. You're you're lacing up your spiritual sneakers and you think that being better than some other human being is going to get you some qualification in front of God. Listen, your contempt for others is not only going to not get you qualification before Him, it will disqualify you from Him. Do not miss Jesus' point here. The lesson is for us who trust in ourselves that we are good to go and we need somebody to compare to so we can qualify. Here's the problem. God is not grading us on a human curve. One of my favorite quotes that came out of this whole uh, solar eclipse thing, you've heard me say it, you've seen me post it on Twitter, is, is this. Uh, and this is loosely quoted, but it said, the sun will burn your retinas out in a few seconds from 93 million miles away. And do you believe you can casually walk into the presence of the one who made the sun? Paul thought he was righteous until Jesus appeared to him on the Damascus Road. And all of a sudden, Paul could not compare himself to the unholiness of human beings. He was blinded by the holiness of Jesus. From that moment on, Paul was different. Because he saw the one to whom he was being compared. He saw the righteousness of God. In chapter 10 of the book of Romans, there's this confusion, and I'll be touching on it over the next few weeks, but it says that the reason that these pharisaical Jewish people in Paul's day, in Jesus' day, were not saved is that there was a confusion on their part. First off, they were ignorant of the righteousness of God. Second, they were seeking to establish their own righteousness. And third, they were not comparing or subjecting themselves to the righteousness of God. When Paul finally saw the righteousness of God in the face of Jesus Christ, it blinded him and put him in the dust and from that moment on Paul never bragged on anything but the cross of Jesus Christ why? because he no longer looked out at the multitudes and compared himself to them he looked at Jesus compared himself to him and went woe is me I am a wretched man who will deliver me From the body of this death, he saw the holiness of God. And so, the cure for this is not put on your spiritual sneakers and outrun the guy next to you. Put on your spiritual sneakers and outrun the people you watched on news last night, or read an article about, or on a blog about. No, that's all foolishness. In fact, it's disqualification. So, number three, the story is about two people. A Pharisee and a tax collector. If you were wanting your daughter to get married in that day, I'll tell you who you would have chosen. You would have chosen the Pharisee, the upright, the moral man. Because why? Man, he's upstanding in the community. He's upstanding in the church. He's upstanding in governmental affairs. In every way, upstanding. There's just one problem. He trusts in himself. That he's righteous. And he treats others with contempt. Oh, maybe not directly, but indirectly. Maybe not in a way that you could tag him with, but in a way God could tag him with. These two people were not in the same league. If they were running for city council, we you know who would have the opportunity to advance it wouldn't be the scorned and hated traitor. It would be the Pharisee, the moral. So you have two different people as far apart as you can get. One is faithful to Israel, faithful to the nation, faithful to all of the rules and regulations, yet trusting in himself. And his faithfulness was rooted in his own self-righteousness, not in faith. And then, you got the tax collector. He's just an obvious idiot. It just is. Everybody knows it. But he's a rich idiot. He goes home and he says, Man, I'm I'm rolling in comfort up here. Y'all can think whatever you want. But inside my nicely secure little palatial house with all the food that I want to eat and all the goods that I have, I'm set. This is the kind of guy that's described in the picture of the rich man and Lazarus. Where he's living in splendor every day. This guy's got it. And suddenly something happens in his heart and he makes a realization. And that's where we get number four. Two postures. These two guys come with two different postures. It's interesting. One draws near and stands and prays. Really eloquent prayer. His posture is that of a man self-confident. And they compare that. Jesus says it's totally different in verse 13. But the tax gather standing some distance away. In other words, He's going, man, I don't even deserve to get close. I'll stand in the lobby. Alright? I don't even deserve to get close. And He doesn't lift up His head which was a normal posture of Jewish prayer, he humbles himself and he bows and he beats his chest, which is a a sign of remorse. And so you have these two postures. One is that of exalted self-confidence and the other is humble brokenness. And God notices the postures. Jesus takes time to mention it. He says He was far away, unwilling to lift up His eyes to heaven and beating His breast. He, he notices. Jesus says, I caught this guy's posture. I watched him. God's always watching us <laughs> in everything we ever, ever, ever do. He's not missing a beat. And so Jesus calls out the very thing of the distance, of the bowing in sorrow, and of the the chest thumping where He's going, oh God. And He's getting it. And so there's this picture here that, God sees that's very different than human perception. And so then you have two different prayers. One prayer is rooted in man's goodness, man's righteousness, man's religion, man's way of trying to appease God. And that prayer goes... God, I thank thee that I am not like other people. Swindlers, to name a few, unjust, adulterers, or, (laughs) and in the middle of the prayer, he singles out that guy standing at a distance. Beating his breast. Bowing his head. And he says, we're like that guy. Interesting. During his prayer, two people point at him. The Pharisee points at him and says, I'm glad I'm not like that punk. And Jesus points at him. And says, be like this punk. Wow. And so he lays his prayer out. I fast twice a week. It's a Tuesday, Thursday thing. I pay tithes of all that I get. And so he he, he basically said, Hey God. Uh He reaches into his little spiritual pocket and he pulls out his spiritual resume. He puts on his little spiritual fast tennis shoes to outrun sinners with. And he says, hey God, check this out. My prayer to you is a boast in me. And I thank you that you made me like this. We find out on down the road, God didn't make him like this. We find out when John reveals Jesus' confrontation with these kind of Pharisees, he said, God is not your Father. So you have these two prayers. The second guy simply says the language is very specific, richly theological. He said, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. Now, there are many important things in this text. I just want to point out two. The language he used for be merciful was not the common word for mercy. It was the word for mercy seat, a place inside the temple where blood was poured onto the mercy seat which sat under the presence of God in the temple and a of the law of God in the temple. And blood of a sacrificial lamb was poured on that. And the thing that this man understood in his richly theological prayer was the concept of what is called substitution. Later on, when this word is translated in the Bible, in Romans and in First John, it's translated propitiation. Same word. In fact, if you've got a New American Standard, it will say in the middle, be propitious to me. Why is this richly theological and why does this matter? Here's why it matters. The understanding that he had was he needed a substitute if mercy was ever going to arrive. That he could not measure up, live up, perform all that God required of him in the law. That he had not. And that he deserved divine wrath and punishment. He deserved all of those things and he needed a substitute so that God could be happy with him because he knew that on his own merit God could never be happy with him. So he says, God, be made happy on my behalf. He's asking for a substitute. He's asking for a lamb. He's asking for something to die in His place because He calls out the mercy seat where the blood of the sacrifice was poured so that God would forgive sins. And in the Old Testament, the picture was that a lamb would die in place of the people or a person And then John the Baptist says, Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. And this guy is hearkening back to the hope that Israel had that God would provide a substitute as He did with Abraham and Isaac. God will provide a lamb. God will make a way. It's a richly theological, this humble sinner says, God, I can't please you. You will have to please yourself. He speaks it in the reflexive voice, which means God has to do something Himself if He will ever be pleased with people. It's richly theological because this man understands that God will do something to please Himself. He will send His only Son. And by His Son's sacrifice... He will be pleased with everyone who trusts His Son. That's the Gospel. This man understands it. He says it in one word. God, propitiate Yourself. Satisfy Yourself. Bring what is pleasing to Yourself. I can't because I am The sinner. He doesn't use the collective, I am a sinner. Oh, that's easy for us. Oh, I'm just a sinner. You know, just like everybody else. No, he says, I'm the sinner. This is my issue. This isn't their issue. It's not their fault. I'm not a collective with them as if somehow I can wash away my guilt by saying everybody's guilty. Everybody's doing it. No, I am the sinner. I'm the guilty one. It's me. So something's happening here that is the Gospel itself. It is where a person realizes they have no contribution to God. God makes the contribution on their behalf. They have no sacrifice to God. God makes the sacrifice on their They can't take God's punishment. God takes His own punishment. In His son. They can't make the payment. God makes the payment. All these things come together in this one word. And this guy gets it. He gets the Gospel. And he says, this is my hope. This is it. God, be propitiated on my behalf. The sinner. Not the collective. Me. I'm the guilty one. I'm hoping that this video will help out. Lynn, will you run that? Follow it. It does a little creative license, but here we go. The rule of Jews. How you can they live with themselves, our own people working for Rome, these people make me sick. Collaborators, let's move on. A stinking vermin. You should keep your distance from me. Two men went to the temple to pray. One a Pharisee, and the other one a tax collector. The Pharisee prayed, God. I thank you that I'm not like other men. Thieves, adulterers, or this tax collector. But the tax collector didn't even look up to heaven. He said, God, have mercy on me. I'm a sinner. God bless the tax collector, not the Pharisee. Anyone who prays with himself To be humbled. And anyone who humbles himself will be praised. Matthew. Every one of us are walking away from worship today. And every one of us will be in one of these two conditions when we leave these doors. There's no middle ground. We will either leave today trusting in ourselves and be disqualified from the very thing we want Or we will leave trusting in Jesus and just by that trust be qualified for more than we could ever imagine. Every one of us. How do we deal with it? First, we see it, we're sinners. Get away from the collective. Get down to the specific. I am a sinner. I have disqualified myself by my sin from any claim to righteousness of myself. I have none. The Bible says the very best thing that I can ever produce by my efforts is before God nothing more than filthy rags. I must seek it. There is only one source, one fountain, one place where righteousness is given. The Bible says that righteousness comes from God to a person solely on the basis of the merit of Christ and faith in Him. So I must come to God and say, God, be propitiated to me. The sinner! I see it, and I must seek it, because He is the only source of it. And then I have to say it. Jesus said, Anyone who will not confess me before men, I will not confess before my Father. There is no secret Christianity. This man, in his public display of faith, spoke it. He said it. It was heard even in a prayer gathering. God, be merciful to me. He did not yet know of the cross, but He knew of the need. Here we know of the cross where Jesus Christ, in His righteousness, gave Himself. So here's my invitation to you. Bow with me as I plead with you. Do not walk out of here and be the other man. Be the one who Jesus says this man, this woman, this boy, this girl, this young man, this young woman, this youth went to their house justified and not the other. Would you place your faith in Jesus Christ today and know that He loves to receive sinners and He welcomes you as He has welcomed me and millions before you. He welcomes you today. Would you come to Him? Would you turn from trusting in yourself and trust Him? See it! He is righteous. You are unrighteous. Seek it. He is the source of righteousness through His death, burial, and resurrection on your behalf. Say it. Ask for it. Plead with Him. Pray with me now. God in heaven, I see it. You are righteous, holy, pure, glorious, eternal, unapproachable, pure holiness. I am sinful. I am the sinner. And I seek from You what I cannot do. I cannot make myself righteous. And I have foolishly trusted in myself to do so. I turn from that today. And I say it. I trust Jesus. Save me because I do. The Bible says in answer to your prayer to God today, whoever calls upon the name of the Lord, shall be saved. Justified. Would you receive Him today? Stand as God works in your heart. Come.